Welcome to the second episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute Postcard Series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this podcast, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapon. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be the co-host for this series, along with my colleague, Amim Lutfi. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're glad to have with us today, Mr. Jamie Williamson, the Executive Director of the International Code of Conduct Association, or ICOCA. As the head of the Secretariat of ICOCA, Mr. Williamson brings to the association a wealth of international, legal, military, and security experience. He joined the ICOCA in October 2017 after several years as the head of the relations with Arms Carrier Unit at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Jamie, thank you again to be with us today. Let's start with the first question. In our first podcast, Dr. Sean McFaith argued that we are entering in the age of durable disorder, where legal norms will become redundant. But ICOCA, you believe that uh, in the private sector can follow code of conduct even without state oversight. Can you tell us a little bit more about ICOCA role in promoting greater transparency and accountability in the private military and security sector? Thank you, Jane. Uh, good morning, uh, Alex. I mean, well, good morning from Geneva. And uh, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to be part of your podcast series. I hope you're all doing well uh, during particular uh, interesting times. And uh, thank you very much for the, uh, I think, the first question about the International Code of Conduct Association and the International Code of Conduct. Uh, if you allow me, I'll take you, give you a bit of a historical sort of, uh, sort of perspective in terms of where the association comes from, uh, how it was established, and I think the raison d'etre of the code of conduct. I think we need to cast our mind back to the second Gulf War, Iraq, 2004, 2005, or thereabouts, uh, at a time when we saw an increasing number of uh, security companies and military contractors operating in a conflict environment. There were quite a few, uh, I think, unsavory scenes, the number of human rights allegations, and the number of clear abuses of international humanitarian law in those contexts, and a number of uh, well-known and well-labeled uh, private military as well as security companies uh, were at the forefront of many of the accusations and many other wrongful acts. As a result of that, uh, during the same period in 2007 or thereabouts, the International Committee of the Red Cross, as well as the Swiss government, uh, pushed for uh, an initiative uh, which ultimately led to the creation of the Montreux document or the drafting of the Montreux document, named after the city of Montreux uh, in Switzerland. The idea behind the Montreux document was effectively a restatement of existing international law um, with regard to the regulation, oversight and activities as well as enforcement and accountability of private military as well as security companies and contractors, specifically in armed conflict environments. So you'll see it's a far, far, fairly vast range in documents covering many elements under the Geneva Conventions, human rights uh, treaties and the likes. From that uh, Montreux document, and in parallel with the discussions with regard to the UN guiding principles on business and security and uh, human rights, the International Code of Conduct was developed by governments, civil society organizations, as well as the security industry and a number of clients, 
as a code of conduct for security companies operating in complex environments. Not necessarily conflict environment, but complex environments. This code of conduct is uh, vast ranging, in particular in terms of human rights obligations and international humanitarian law standards. And the code of conduct is effectively a document to guide the operations of private security companies. The code of conduct was adopted in 2010 as part of this multi-stakeholder process. And then the International Code of Conduct Association was established in 2013, also as a multi-stakeholder uh, organization to oversee the implementation of the code of conduct. So it brings together governments, private security companies, civil society organizations, as well as observers, clients, academics from the corporate world, and so on, to work together through an integrated process of monitoring, certification, dealing with complaints, to ensure that security companies apply the code of conduct and that security companies are also held accountable for any shortcomings of that code of conduct. Um, Jamie, let me just, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the, not just this kind of the document that came, that the document in the end you said was framed through negotiations of different stakeholders of the state, of different uh, international, even conventions. And my question then is that uh, that ultimately the 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 this charter, this code of conduct, is a system of self-regulation um, that co that companies have to sign on and they have to follow this code of conduct. Do you think in the long term something like this, some kind of like the system of self-regulation, is sustainable, or would you still say that we need stronger enforcement mechanisms? at the international level. Do we still need an international body, let's say like the UN, to enforce these mechanisms? Or can we still have it with, or, or in other words, like, I mean, do just, just like having the carrots work, or do we also need the stick? Yeah, so thank you very much. I mean, I mean it's, um, it's a quite complex question, uh, which has potentially a number of different elements to look at here. Um, the, I think the first, the first point I need to uh, sort of clarify is, of course, that the code of conduct itself and the work of the association is not driven through the lens of self-regulation. I think that's partly the process that led to the drafting of the Code of Conduct was a recognition that you need to bring the different stakeholders to the group. So we have governments in place that play a pivotal role with regard to the oversight of private security companies as part of the association. We have civil society organizations that can play a quite important role both in terms of capacity, uh, capacity building as well as monitoring of private security companies. And then of course we have the private security companies that are sort of bound by the code of conduct and the system that the association has developed. The question in terms of uh, sort of the enforcement mechanism and the potential of having an international treaty to deal with these matters, I think has been part of uh, the discussions in this field for at least I think a decade. In the UN Working Group on Mercenaries, uh, pushed out a draft convention, I think it was in 2005 or 2006. I stand to be corrected on the date, uh, but a few years ago. And there's, uh, I think, further discussions being led by the UN Working Group of Mercenaries as to whether or not we should have an international treaty. In my mind, uh, as someone who's worked in international law and public international law for the best part of two decades, I think that one of the major shortcomings of international law and I think the multilateral system today is a lack of clear implementation and enforcement mechanisms. And I do not believe that the addition of an additional uh, international treaty or an international norm or uh, convention of any sort will necessarily add much to the panoply of existing instruments that we have. Let me break that down. 
If you look at the international legal order presently, uh, which doesn't necessarily focus on security companies or military contractors, but nonetheless covers them, you have the Mercenary Convention, the UN Mercenary Convention, the Geneva Conventions, a wide range of human rights treaties, national laws and regulations and licensing regimes in place. There's already a very strong regulatory framework in place. And the simple stick uh, of the international of an international instrument will be insufficient without the appropriate level of implementation at the at a pragmatic level at the grassroots level and in my mind to have a much better system in place you need to create the necessary incentives for security companies for those in supply chain to raise their standards you need to have a greater level of transparency within the system as well in many of these so-called complex environments it's not it's where there's a lack of good governance, you still have a security industry operating. So how do we shed more light on the activities? How do we shed more light in terms of the oversight and the complaints and the shortcomings of the industry? So I think it's a combination of both the carrot and the stick. I would caution, given the present state of multilateral discussions and treaty-making bodies and the potential going forward, I would caution against developing an international instrument at this stage. However, I would certainly uh, call for greater grassroots level pragmatic implementation in country with regard to regulation of security companies. To follow up uh, in what you just said, especially with reference, uh, you mentioned the, the need to have a better system in place. Uh, what uh, is the association growth strategy? I mean, do you main plan to lobby the demand side or do you market the supply side about the importance of abiding by a particular code of conduct. Yeah, thank you, Alex. And again, I mean, that's uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question in terms of the objectives that we have to set ourselves. I mean, so sort of rebounding off uh, Amin's earlier question, ultimately the question has to be, you know, how do we uh, influence the behavior of those in the supply chain? How do we influence the behavior for the better of security contractors and the oversight of the security industry. So the approach that the association has taken is to recognize that without a demand for security services, there won't be a supply. It's a commercial venture, it's a commercial entity, it's a commercial world that we're looking at, even in complex environments and even in conflict situations. So the association has naturally been looking at an array of actors along the supply chain that can influence for the better the behavior of the security industry and those that use security providers. So to give you a handful of examples here, clients. You know, ultimately, where does the responsibility lie first and foremost? Clients, those that use the services of private security companies, those that will hire the contractors to do their security in different environments. What attitudes have clients taken with regard to duty of care, due diligence approach? Because without their oversight, without their strong procurement processes, without their uh, requirements in their uh, procurement chains in terms of the ongoing monitoring of the security provider, security companies will potentially operate below standard. Donors, right? donors, so major governments, those which are financing the operations of humanitarian agencies and NGOs in complex environments. They have likewise a duty of care to the beneficiaries along that um, still financing trail. The NGO community, Humanitarian actors are likewise quite often users of security providers in complex environments. They have responsibilities. How do we ensure that they know what they should be looking at when they hire security companies? Investors, 
we are seeing in many environments, uh, you know, capital venture, venture capitalist uh, firms investing in security companies, or we have a major international transnational corporation with investors as well as shareholders using security companies in complex environments. So likewise, investors should have a responsibility. We have ethical investments with regard to protection on the environment, for instance. So potentially there should also be more ethical investment with regard to uh, protection of human rights and operations of security companies. So there's all those different target groups that we have to look at along the entire supply chain, both from the demand and the supply piece. And the growth strategy also needs to come back to recognizing that the security industry is a very international business with a very localized footprint in many environments. So it's no longer simply a monopoly by a handful of large international security type companies from the UK and the US, for example, but we are seeing proliferation, naturally so, of many small local security providers in different parts of the world. Jamie, so how hopeful are you of bringing some of these smaller um, companies that you said have recently proliferating, how hopeful are you of bringing them on board to this code of conduct? Because to me, it seems like I can see why a large corporatized private military company in the United States uh, might be, it might see it as an interest to follow this code of conduct and to deal with, you know, at this formal level. But what about these smaller mom and shop companies? What about these companies that are playing in, in, in conflict zones like Syria? or even for that matter, um, private companies that are uh, coming out of Russia, out of China, how hopeful are you that they, you could convince them to come on board as well? Would they not see uh, something like uh, this code of conduct as you know, just unnecessary restrictions on them? A fair question. Um, and I remain very hopeful. If I wasn't hopeful, I wouldn't be here. Um, I think one has to be pragmatic and hopeful and um, look also at the membership base of the association. So if you look at the number of security companies operating uh, that are part of the association, then the vast majority are local security providers, uh, not necessarily the large uh, international security providers, of which they're not that many. And hopeful I am, quite simply from my own experience of having um, worked alongside some of these local security providers in the past couple of years, in some quite remote areas in different parts of Africa, for instance, or in Iraq and so on. The, Reaction you'll see quite often on the part of, of the, I'll say, good local security providers is a positive one. There's very much this will and wish to learn more from us in terms of what the code of conduct can bring to the operations to strengthen the, the culture, the management, the oversight, the leadership qualities that these security providers offer. But also, I think, a recognition on the part of many of the local security providers that there's a business case for them to make. Uh, by improving their own services, by improving their own standards and operating to internationally recognized standards, they have a greater chance of also picking up uh, larger contracts from international clients. Because ultimately, it's the international clients that are going to drive much of this market environment, and they are looking to international standards. My experiences the past few months in northern Kenya with a very small local security company that had just been established was very positive to the extent I was literally walking hand in hand with the managers and the guards to each of their duty posts, looking at how they're applying the code of conduct in practice, noting how they were reacting to that and implementing some of the recommendations we were taking on board. And there was a certain level of pride as well, that they felt that they were now part of that international discussion and not seen simply as a small local security company. So hopeful, optimistic, but 
I dare say there's still quite a lot more work to be done to ensure that the uh, International Code of Conduct is known in more context than known than we see today, and that there's a greater access to what the Code of Conduct can offer and the association for local security companies, which is easier said than done, but not impossible. I, I quite like the pragmatical optimism that uh, you just uh, mentioned now. Uh, and thank you for bringing up a best practice uh, uh, that is the one in Kenya. Uh, please allow me to bring the conversation to a part of the world that uh, we mainly work with uh, at uh, MEI. Uh, the Middle East uh, is teaming with all sorts of non-state military personnel, including proxy and terrorist group. How does the association in this regard step uh, in this, let's allow me to say, kind of muddled space and carve out uh, a space for regulated private security? And also, do we have a kind of uh, Kenya experience that you just mentioned for the Middle East? I think the um, thank you very much, Alex. It's uh, I like the the use of uh, the word muddled in uh, your question. I think that's what the International Code of Conduct and the Association can bring to the table is unraveling this confusion. I think one of the most important um, aspects of our work here has to be not only bringing greater transparency uh, to these issues, but certainly bringing more precision to the debate, more understanding as to who these actors are. Too often, uh, when we speak about private actors in conflict zones, be they local or international, and if one looks at the media reports and quite a few of the academic writings out there, the vast majority would refer quite easily to the term mercenaries. Um, you referred to uh, Sean McFate's um, quotes at the beginning of your interview, and I know uh, Sean pretty well, and you know his latest book in terms of trying to label everything mercenaries. I can see where he's coming from, but it doesn't necessarily, I think, add much in terms of the nuance that we need to see in these environments. What does the code of conduct do? It can break down and understand. Say these are the actors that we're interested in: security providers that provide a certain type of service in those environments. That's part of our catchment area. Then when we need to unravel the rest of the landscape, if we have proxy, militias, uh, military companies, mercenaries, is to use the kind of honest debate that the association can deliver on, uh, to use, I think, the drive with the media and the public, and even, for instance, this podcast, to have a much more comprehensive discussion as to who exactly are these various actors in these different zones? How do we actually access those actors who do they report to? Where does the, does the attribution of responsibility lie with regard to those actors? And what body of the law applies to those individuals? So to me, it's that honest debate. And in my time with the association of the past two, three years, I have seen the discussion evolve. I have seen a greater understanding on the part of those looking at these environments with regard to identifying those are military contractors. They fall within a kind of Department of Defense contract. There's an oversight mechanism there. These are security providers. They fall within this particular regime. And then you have the gray area, which I think you alluded to in your question, of those military type actors that not everyone knows who they report to and how they act or operate in those environments. Do they report to a state? Do they report to an international enterprise? Uh, what's the nationality of the individuals in part of that company? 
And I think with the presence of the code of conduct, uh, with the drive for the motor document, you have this greater understanding potential being developed. But I don't think we're quite yet out of the woods. Is there, is there, Jamie, is there some kind of like live uh, feedback loop on these organizations as they evolve, as they change, as they adapt to reassess their situation, to reassess like how they've been, like, uh, because the, I mean, there's a, it's a revolving door, as you said, I mean, like come, a, a group can go from being a private military contractor to being um, a militia in a matter of like months. So is there some kind of like active feedback loop that you guys are also plugged into? I think um, what we tend to look at, I mean, our focus, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is very much on the kind of security contracting piece. So the range of services that security contractors may offer uh, will be quite limited in terms of traditional security enterprise. You may see some of the security companies moving into the military contracting world as well, those that have the capability to do so. And that becomes a different set of issues that need to be assessed and falls a little bit outside of our remit. The question I would uh, you know, like to look at is the situation of non-state armed groups in some of these conflict environments that for various reasons, be it for security reasons, commercial benefits, peace talks, etc., themselves can start morphing into uh, security contractors. Yet most of the individuals part of that uh, non-state armed group are military type. In other words, they were combatants a few months previously. Now they provide a security role. And the question I would have for those individuals is, do they have the necessary understanding or training or protocols in place to have made that transition from being an armed non-state group in a conflict situation to now becoming and want to become a legitimate private security company? The other thing is where the biggest discussion is. The militia, military, um, I think, transition and loop and feedback loop that you alluded to as well in your question, that's a bit more complicated um, because most of those entities will naturally stay out of the limelight in terms of publicity. There will be a lot less transparency in terms of their uh, setup, in terms of where their money is coming from. There will be certainly very little visibility in terms of the type of contracts that they're running and ultimately who's issuing those contracts. I think that's today where much of the focus needs to be as well, is how do you unravel that world? How do you assess what these so-called militias or proxy militaries are actually up to? And how do you assume a level of responsibility along uh, contracts or with states to ensure that those companies, those entities are properly controlled and the level of accountability and responsibility uh, introduced? If I can move the conversation a little bit further east um, to part of the world where we're sitting in right now, Singapore, here you have a very different um, situation from what we see in the Middle East. So as opposed to in the Middle East, what Alex talked about, you have this muddled situation. In Singapore, it's very specifically the state ultimately holds the monopoly of violence and the monopoly of, of all kind of instruments of violence. Do you still see that, uh, that ICOCA or private military companies in general have a role to play in security provision in a country like Singapore? Me particularly, I hear I'm thinking about the maritime security sector. Well, thanks, I mean, I mean looking at um, so, you know, Southeast Asia, Singapore, uh, the Malacca Straits and so on, in my mind, yes, there is uh, still a role, and I'll be quite direct, for ICOCA, for the association in that regard, with a particular focus on maritime security. 
Again, the statistics that we see coming out on a yearly basis uh, reported, for instance, by Recap uh, last year, even more recently, in terms of sort of the piracy uh, type incidents that we see in that region. It's a particular question mark with regard to the shipping lanes to uh, so the maritime sector. It's a lesser question of the land security piece. And we have, as part of an association, you know, about 20 or so of our companies are maritime security companies, including a couple uh, that operate out of Singapore. Uh, we have a couple of Chinese security companies as well. At least one of them provides maritime security services too. So there is an interest in maritime security um, perspective. And I think it's an interest which should not be um, limited in any way whatsoever because there's a lot less understanding as to what happens on the high seas and on ships with regard to security. It's much easier to monitor land security operations. You can fly there when lockdown finishes, see the concessions, understand how the guards operate, rotate, look at the SOPs, etc. The bigger question is, how do you monitor maritime security services? How do you ensure that you can onboard ships and see how the company is operating? Uh, how do you have visibility of the operations of the guards, be they arm, uh, armed or unarmed aboard the ships? What's the protection of the seafarers that goes with that? And if I look at the, again, the stats in your uh, part of the world, uh, East, clearly there are incidents of piracy uh, which haven't disappeared, which potentially are on the rise. We're also seeing, of course, an interest with regard to the Belt and Road Initiative. And what does that mean uh, from a sort of maritime uh, sort of channels and maritime security in that regard? And there would also be, I think, some interest on the part of shipping owners, uh, in particular, those that have international operations, if they're traveling through the Gulf of Guinea or coming off the coast of Somalia and the sort of the Mozambique Channel Gulf of Aden, there will be maritime security elements there as well. So I think, in my mind, mainland Singapore, that's not an issue. It's not a complex environment. But many of the shipping lanes clearly offer some complexity in terms of the operating environments. And naturally, there'll be a role there for maritime security and a role for um, uh, in the International Code of Conduct. Thank you. With this answer, basically, you give us uh, material for a new podcast uh, that we will have soon and probably focusing on complex environment uh, in maritime security, especially now that there is a perception that is dwindling in East Africa, but is increasing in West Africa. But please allow me to end uh, with an easy question. That's a question that basically we are asking to all our guests. And is what will the future of warfare and security management in complex environment look like in the coming 30 years? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Alex. And I presume we have another half an hour for this podcast to answer this particular question. Um, interesting that you should ask us this question. So we, uh, the association, at the end of last year, organized our first workshop to look at future security trends with regard to the provision of security in different environments. And we looked 30 years down the sort of down the channel as such, and at many levels, of course, were in a sort of speculative mode, not necessarily knowing what we're going to see in 30 years from now. But we were able to identify two or three key trends in terms of the major dynamics and the potential risks that uh, should be considered. I think the first trend was that a number of major Western militaries, as well as NATO, have recognized that there's going to be a growth in the use of prior security contractors in the foreseeable future. This is not something that's going to disappear. Uh, this is not something which is simply a blip uh, post-Iraq. 
um, but it is a trend uh, in terms of growth, in terms of reliance, and where we're going to see the private security stepping in where public security forces are unable to commit and apply their own uh, responsibilities. Two or three broader trends that we looked at in terms of how this would affect security were the recognition in terms of urbanization. We're seeing, of course, the major trend in terms of urbanization, the growth of megacities, uh, the question of how do you police um, these sort of um, mega cities, uh, how do you manage uh, security in highly urbanized environments, and how do you manage security in ungoverned spaces if most people have moved to urbanized environments. A second trend, of course, was what would be the impact with regard to uh, security and the creation of insecurity through climate change and resource uh, sort of wars as such. Uh, what will security look like there? And what would that uh, give rise to in terms of problematics, in terms of provisional security and insurance security for local communities? The positive as well as negative impacts of technology. Uh, we're seeing um, how technology is being used right now as most countries have gone into lockdown to allow individuals to operate, to communicate and so on. But we are, of course, naturally seeing as a fallout of the present lockdown, but also as a potential technology offers, uh, that technology could be a very positive tool uh, or range of tools being made available to security providers. The questions then would be, you know, how does one use that technology? How does one ensure that human rights are naturally protected? What will that technology look like? Would it be drones? Would it be other forms of surveillance? And so on and so forth. So urbanization, climate change, and technology were seen as three major trends that we need to think about, which were going to make the environment a bit more complex. And I think the last piece, and we're looking to have some discussions on this as well, is exactly what we're living uh, right now, a major health crisis, um, a COVID-type situation occurring again. And combine um, technology with urbanization and the pandemic. And if we believe everything that individuals are telling us that this is the first of many such pandemics, and you overlay that with the existing trends that we saw last year, and, you know, pitching ourselves 30 years from now, there will be some major questions in terms of how do you effectively deliver security in those environments, given that there could be a different range of security threats and issues uh, confronting any one of us. Well, thank you so much, Jeannie, for being with us today and bringing in a very fresh perspective onto this topic. Normally, when people think of this world of private military, you think of, you know, like the might is right situation, lawless world. But what you kind of bring in is that there's a, system, there's a way in which, you know, order can be brought in even to this space. And, and there's a set of code of conduct that, that, that and, 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 you know, a lot of work, what ICOCA has been doing is bringing that kind of order into this world. So again, thank you, Jamie, for being with us and sharing your thoughts with us today. Um, I want to end this podcast by also thanking the people behind the, this podcast team. In particular, I want to thank Eugene Lim, Alistair Lowe, and Wei Chen from the MEI Events and Communication team, and a special thanks to the MEI Associate Director, Carl Gavin, for their support. Um, and also, you know, thank you for all the listeners who are kind of plugged in and who are listening to us today. Uh, and even sending us your comments, please keep on following us on various social media platforms and the website and just sending us your feedback. Uh, I want to in the end plug in the, our next 
upcoming talk. Our next upcoming talk will be with Mr. Doug Brooks, who is the President Emeritus of the International Stability Operations Association, or ISOA, ISOA. And we will continue this discussion about private military section and, and uh, sector and bringing in order and rules into this world. Thank you, everyone, for being with us today.